Hello everybody and welcome to the Anita Po Show, a Bitcoin-only podcast. My guest today is the one and only Andreas M. Antonopoulos, one of the world's foremost Bitcoin and open blockchain experts. He's not only the author of five books, he's also an excellent speaker. And I'm very happy that I was able to see him in person in Berlin to do an interview with him, which are very rare in the last years. Andreas and I, we are going to talk about Bitcoin, the differences to Ethereum, what the future of the Lightning Network will look like, and a lot of other interesting topics. Before we start, a short word from my sponsors and a message about my book, and then on to the interview. Enjoy! Learn Bitcoin will teach you the why and how to use Bitcoin. It's no simple task to explain Bitcoin. Anita's angle of attack is holistic, synthetic, and clear. Thomas Votlin, founder and CEO, Electrum. Order your copy now at learnbitcoin.link. That's learnbitcoin.link. Living on crypto is easier than you think with Bitrefill. Choose from over 4,000 gift cards and mobile top-up options from around the world. I used Bitrefill to top up my phone when I was visiting Zimbabwe. It was easy, worked like a charm, and I even earned sats back. Pay with Bitcoin, Lightning, Ethereum, Dash, Tether over Tron, and many more options. No account is necessary. Join the thousands of users around the world who are living on crypto today using Bitrefill. Join now at bitrefill.com and start earning sats back with each purchase. That's bitrefill.com. Hello, Andreas. Hello, Anita. <laughs> I'm so surprised to see you in person. Oh, yes. I mean, it's been two years since I've done anything in person. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And um, you're doing a happy hour here? Yes, uh, I'm doing a happy hour for uh, patrons uh, and community builders, and uh, we're going to meet at a nice uh, beer house, a beer garden mm -hmm. um, here in Berlin. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Do you think it's the time to take that on now also more in the future again, like more regular, like you did like two years ago? Or is this a one-time occasion for Berlin people? Uh, I, I think I might be doing it a bit more often, um, probably not as often as before. And I'm doing it with a very controlled and small environments. So I'm not ready to go to conferences with 500,000 people. Um, and I also don't honestly trust the organizers of such conferences. Like this is a small event. I'm going to have less than a dozen people and everyone has to show not just proof of vaccination, but also a same day negative test um, because I don't want to, you know, contribute to someone else getting sick. Yeah, understand completely. Okay, so let's get into the topic of mm -hmm. the day, as always, Bitcoin and yes. other open blockchains. Thanks for doing this. And the last time uh, we spoke was online uh, yes. at the end of the year, last year, uh, about uh, your future view um, or what will happen maybe in 2021 with Bitcoin and the Lightning mm -hmm. Network. And now I would like to uh, ask you about um what what has uh, come so far like in this um, first half of the year for you what was important in bitcoin um, in general 
So I think the the most exciting news of the year in Bitcoin was the um, lock in of the Taproot set of features. So that's three features: um, Taproot, TapScript, and Schnorr signatures um, that were locked in with um, a new activation mechanism, which was quite exciting. They tried something new called Speedy Trial, which is either get it done fast or try again. Um, fail fast kind of approach um, to see if the miners were going to activate it without a fuss. Um, there was a lot of concern after the SegWit activation that um, that there might be some reason why miners might object and people wanted to force the miners and other people were like, well, let's give them a chance. And so they're like, okay, we'll give them a chance, but it's going to be really quick, less than three months. And in fact, it only took um, four weeks. Uh, and in four weeks, 97% of the miners signaled yes, boom, locked in. And in November, we're going to have a whole new set of features in Bitcoin. I'm really excited. These features enable a lot of things, including they make it um, much more efficient for the Lightning Network uh, and other script-based things to operate on Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So they will enable more privacy and I think also like optimization or effic efficiency of data and uh the number also maybe of transactions that are possible i don't know absolutely so it's it's a whole package of things um it opens up some new scripting capabilities uh i think probably the best way to 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 look at it is to start with schnorr signatures schnorr signatures are a different signature scheme than what we currently use in bitcoin which is elliptic curve digital signature algorithm and uh, interestingly enough um Schnorr signatures existed when Satoshi created Bitcoin, but um, they were under patent protection. And that patent expired a couple years ago. And um, they're, they're actually better than ECDSA signatures. And if anything, ECDSA signatures were created because Schnorr was under patent and we needed something patent-free. So um, Schnorr signatures have some really amazing properties. And one of the properties they have is that you can add them up. Um, so if you add two private keys together, um, the public key from the sum of the private keys is the same as the sum of the public keys. Mm -hmm. um, so you can do some interesting tricks with that. Um, and the sum of the signatures is the same as the signature of the sum of the private keys. Um, so you can do various things where you additively um, add signatures in a way that uh, condenses them. One of the really interesting features that isn't yet possible, but might become possible with some uh, more changes later, is if you have a transaction with 15 signatures on it, you could collapse all of those into one signature. Now that's a huge optimization mm -hmm. in space, which means then that you can fit a lot more transactions in the block. Even with without that feature, um, there are other optimizations. Um, when you have scripts today, if you have a long script, like for example, a script that says, if um, these two keys out of these three, a two of three multi-sig, or after 90 days, these two keys, or after 180 days, this one key, like a multiple condition script, 
if you try to spend that, you have to include the entire script in the signature, uh, in the input. And that takes a lot of space. Well, with one of the features that's in, um, in this Taproot uh, enhancement uh, called Merkleized Abstract Syntax Trees, instead of, um, instead of putting that script in its entirety, you construct the script as a tree kind of like the Merkle tree that exists for transactions. It's the same concept. And you only show one condition, the one you're actually executing, and the other ones are never seen. Um, an optimization of space and a huge optimization of privacy. Mm. And the third feature is uh, taproot, which is that even though you have the tree, you also have one overriding condition, the root of the tree, which is if everyone agrees. So if you had a multi-sig and everyone cooperates and agrees, you can present a single signature um, on behalf of all of the conditions. And not only does that save a lot of space, but even better, it now looks like a single person signing. And if you can make complex scripts, lightning channel closures, um, and many other multi-sig type features look like a single signature, that's a huge privacy improvement because now you're not hiding a needle in a haystack. You're hiding a needle in a needle stack. They all look the same, mm -hmm. right? So you don't even know anymore if it's like, I don't know, a, an unknown high number of payments through a payment channel that go into the blockchain again. Yes. Or if it's just a transaction from one peer to the other on the blockchain. Yes, exactly. So closing a channel, a lightning channel, because usually the two channel partners cooperate to close a channel. So that case, which is the most common case, um, they'll make that look like a single payment, single signature, um, just as if they were making an off-chain transaction with two outputs, settling the balance of the channel. Very, very common type of transaction. Yes, which leads us a little bit to the topic of regulation. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just right in the last two weeks, uh, there was a new discussion in the US uh, and a vote about, I, I don't know how all these things are called, but mm -hmm. it seems that uh, politicians don't understand or um, just want to, to, to push their own agenda and um, are very hard on uh, cryptocurrencies, mm -hmm. like on Bitcoin and others, even more on others, interestingly, because they yeah. said proof of work is okay, but everything else not. Um, so in general, what do you think about regulation? Are Bitcoin developers actually programming uh, regulation away, you know, like that we don't care about it? What is the future here? I, I don't think it's that we don't care about it. I think what's happening is that the, the battle between regulators and innovators is asymmetric. Um, the regulators, in order to write regulation that actually affects this technology, need to at least somewhat understand how this technology works um, and then write a regulation to that understanding. And then they have to lobby and get it through Congress and get it signed. And that's just one country. And then they have to persuade other countries to do it. And this takes years. Um, so effectively, what they're regulating now is the kind of um, centralized exchange operations um, and uh, what they call brokers, uh, 
from years ago and they're only now passing this law and it's not clear how they're going to use it and what policies they're going to put around it. But the thing is, the technology has already moved on. It's moved on tremendously fast with all of these decentralized exchanges and uh, second layer networks and new uh, zero knowledge uh, proof research and um, all of this research into anonymity and privacy technologies. So while they're regulating what they think it is, um, we're building something new. It's a, it's a bit like the regulators have just woken up and they're like, okay, um, automobiles. Here we have a plan of a Ford Model T. Let's regulate to that. And meanwhile, you're building Teslas on the other side. Um, and they're like, it, it can't have more than eight cylinders. Oh, great. The Tesla has no cylinders. <laughs> How do you regulate that? So I think the, the real issue about the regulation is that what they're doing increasingly is they're only affecting middle-class investors. Those who have the means to evade the regulation, um, rich people who can hire lawyers and accountants and move money to other countries can ignore it. Um, those who live in extreme poverty in corrupt countries can also ignore it because there is an issue there where it's much more important to achieve financial freedom and breaking a small law that you can bribe your way out of with a corrupt cop is not an issue. Who they're really hurting is kind of the developed nation, you know, the German, the American, the British middle class investors and all of the companies uh, like exchanges and miners who are trying to operate in those countries mm -hmm. and pushing the rest into the shadows. Well, that's not politically viable, which is kind of ironic because what's going to happen is they're not stopping any criminals from using this technology. Um, when they hurt the middle class, the middle class gets annoyed and it votes. <laughs> so um, this isn't politically advantageous. I mean, even more in Europe, they want to surveil everything. And yep. uh, so it's even more, I think here, the the understanding is missing um, that this is a technology for the, the betterment and for the people, like for the freedom of the people. So mm -hmm. Um, I even have the feeling that people here or regulators and politicians push even harder against cryptocurrency. Do you mm -hmm. see that too? Yeah, I, I think I do. And what that means is they're, again, going to push middle class investors out of the use of cryptocurrency as an investment asset. And that's going to encourage the development and investment in privacy and anonymity technologies. And you're going to see more and more people adopting much stronger privacy and anonymity technologies. Um, you know, Monero instead of uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum. Mm. Yeah, I, I heard there's now a bridge between uh, Monero, uh, like atomic swaps between Monero and Bitcoin. Yes, and yeah. there and there are um, other things like. Um, uh, uh, blockchains that uh, construct um, trustless liquidity pools um, for atomic swaps between multiple different uh, currencies like Thorchain, for example. Mm -hmm. 
Um, all of these things allow you to effectively have distributed exchanges between very, very private and anonymous currencies and mainstream strong monetary policy currencies, um, well, of which really there is only one, and that's Bitcoin. So you can have the strong liquidity reserve currency monetary features of Bitcoin, and then also be able at a moment's notice to swap into the strong anonymity privacy and uh, easy medium of exchange um, capabilities. So you're talking about Bitcoin DeFi now, like uh, Sovereign, and um, you mentioned ThorChain, which is uh, enables swaps between a multitude of coins, mm -hmm. as far yes. as I know. And so what you're saying is there will be more and more decentralized exchanges yes. and things like uh, BISC, for instance. Yes, exactly. Um, BISC was just the start mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and is, is still um, very effective. Uh, w what we're seeing is um, even more decentralized uh, options and, and a variety of options. So by the time they figure out how to attack one of these, a completely different one pops up and they become harder and harder and harder to write regulations against. Um, ultimately, what this means is that um, people will be able to move very easily from one cryptocurrency to another. The more difficult part is moving fiat into and out of cryptocurrency. And so that's where I think we need to see where the regulation is, is going. Because so, mm -hmm. I think in the long run, what it does is those who are committed to using cryptocurrency, if you cut off the on-ramps and off-ramps, they don't stay out of cryptocurrency. They simply stay in exactly. cryptocurrency. They get in, and then when they can't get their uh, cryptocurrency into fiat, they just simply spend it directly as cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. I see that coming too. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. when I think about this uh, scenario, then I always think to myself, okay, then I never move my money again into uh, fiat. Mm -hmm. I just use Bitcoin and I will uh, select people or, or businesses who uh, accept Bitcoin um, and use them. Yeah. I mean, I think Bitcoin is big enough now or distributed enough around the world that uh, you can make a like live from it. And um, you can, I'm sure you find people uh, that accept it uh, for your rent and things like that. Yeah, it depends where you live, right? So yeah. it, 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 it kind of forces you to make different choices. It's not easy um, to live in cryptocurrencies. And I don't, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't live in cryptocurrencies. Um, what I do, however, is I make some of my income in fiat, I make some of my income in cryptocurrencies, and I very rarely exchange between the two. Mm. Um, if I need to make payments where I can use cryptocurrencies, I, I do that, for example, for paying contractors in other countries. And for all of the things that I can pay with cryptocurrencies, I pay with fiat. And um, uh, to me, that gives me a lot of uh, flexibility. It's a bit more complicated. It's my accountant costs a lot of money. Hmm. Uh, but again, as I said before, that means that the people who can afford accountants can do this more easily. And the middle class who can't 
basically get shut out of this opportunity. Hmm. Now, speaking of the middle class and the upper class, I would be interested in your opinion on the fact that uh, BlackRock uh, is now investing in Bitcoin mining. Isn't mm -hmm. that a bit weird? Uh, like, I mean, I know Bitcoin is an open and neutral technology where everyone can um, uh, participate, but isn't that exactly, are these not the kind of organizations and uh, financial uh, monsters in a way that we didn't want to interact with anymore? Um, yes, they are, but they're interacting with Bitcoin on our terms. Um, we're not interacting with them on their terms. They're now playing in our financial turf under the rules of consensus, not under the rules of banking. For them, this is a very difficult position because while they can't change the rule of consensus, the regulators can change the rules that they have to operate under very, very quickly. And especially for US-based companies, mining, in my opinion, is an activity that carries very, very high regulatory risk. Eventually, um, regulators are going to demand that miners um, remove transactions or censor transactions that they're going to mine or start implementing various whitelists and blacklists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But the, the problem is that that doesn't actually achieve anything. It doesn't change what happens in Bitcoin because some other miners just going to include those transactions. And they're going to start putting more and more and more pressure on US-based miners to do things that are effectively impossible to do. So I'm not worried about BlackRock playing mm -hmm. in Bitcoin because they can't change Bitcoin. But BlackRock should be worried about playing in Bitcoin because the rules that they have to live with in the financial world can be changed um, by a 1% attack, not a 51% attack, not a 99% attack. Hmm. Um, to change Bitcoin rules, you need 99.9% consensus, or in the more recent voting, we saw 97% um, was enough to implement a new feature. Um, but that's a soft fork. <laughs> Implementing a successful hard fork requires a lot more um, persuasion. Hmm. In the regulatory system, the 1% or even the 0.1% write the rules, write the laws, and then implement them on regulations. So that's not a comfortable position to be in. Mm. Um, I can remember that you also were mentioning that ETFs and things like that are a danger to Bitcoin uh, in a way when all those organizations like uh, come together and try to um, influence mm -hmm. Bitcoin in a way. Yeah. Um, How would that be possible? And do you see that coming? I do see that coming. I think what's dangerous is the concentration of ownership and control over keys. Um, so if you have a lot of the money in the Bitcoin ecosystem um, controlled by entities that centralize control over keys, um, those people who buy into an ETF like that are effectively third grade citizens of the Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, they're not participating actively in consensus um, as miners. They're not participating even as nodes validating the rules. Um, and they don't get to withdraw their participation from a chain in the case of a hard fork uh, and choose which chain they want to keep their money on because they don't control the keys. Uh, And the ETF manager does, mm -hmm. and that's dangerous. But isn't that the same with uh, like uh, big exchanges like Coinbase? Yes, it is. 
I mean, big so, exchanges like Coinbase are exactly, and, and all of the other custodial exchanges. Um, custodial ownership of large amounts of Bitcoin means that when we want to introduce things like privacy, um, in stronger privacy into Bitcoin, which I think is absolutely necessary, uh, we will run into um, kind of opposition from those who have one foot in Bitcoin and one foot in the U.S. regulatory domain um, and control enough of the economic activity to put pressure back. Mm. Which is actually a very, very good reason and argument for that, that people um, hold their own keys. And, Absolutely. And do self-custody. Yeah. Yes, and that, that allows you to decide um, which rules of consensus you follow by deciding where to exercise your economic power. Uh, and so I think that's a, a very important rule. But, you know, at the same time, I'm a pragmatist here. Um, people are, for the most part, not going to hold their own keys. Um, we are going to have an environment where some keys are held by custodians, some keys are held by individuals, um, and it's going to be a mix. If enough people control their keys, then they can apply pressure and influence the consensus rules. So it's more about the distribution of power. And pragmatically, the way we look at that is how can we make it easier and easier for people to hold their own keys uh, in a way that is secure, uh, in a way where uh, they don't uh, run into problems, um, in the way that can be done without uh, significant new technical and security knowledge. It's not easy. It's really not easy to hold your own keys, and we need to make it easier. Uh, we have some great technologies that have improved things like um, mnemonic uh, phrases or seeds that allow you to back up your keys with 12 uh, English words, for example. That's great. The problem is how do you store that? Where do you store that? How do you make sure you don't lose it? Uh, what if someone finds it? And all of these other questions. One of the things that I think we're going to see in the future is solutions um, that involve uh, social backup where you are able to give parts of your keys to groups of friends in such a way that it takes cooperation by many of them to help you recover. Mm -hmm. So that's not you... Hard, harder to lose, harder to steal, yeah. um, but easier to recover. Yes. But now it sounds like it's really complicated to do self-custody. I mean, it's doable. But don't don't say it's so complicated because in my book I'm writing about the ways how to do self-custody yes. and how important it is. And it's also what you always say, in, actually. I mean, you, you say all the time, not your keys, not your coins. Yes. So... Well, again, I mean, technology um, is always difficult in the beginning, right? If you think if you think a uh, hundred years back and you said to people, okay, we have automobiles, but learning how to operate one of these vehicles at high speeds on roads where others are moving at high speeds and pedestrians might appear in front of you, I mean, not only is that going to require... I don't know, 40 or 50 hours of training for every person who operates this vehicle, but some kind of way to ensure that that training is correct. 
and um, we're going to have to build roads and fuel stations everywhere. And the first people who heard that went, well, that's never going to work, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, it, and, you know, in the beginning on the internet, it was like, well, we can't find anything because there aren't any good search engines and, and operating browsers is complicated and we're never going to be able to do e-commerce because people are going to get their money stolen. And yet we do. So we can train people to do this better. Uh, It's difficult, but we can do difficult things and the reward is worth it. So financial independence is something that for many people is such an important element of their freedom and their family's economic security that they will do very hard things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And as you say, if you train it, it's not that hard. It could be easier, of course, yes. and it will be easier in the future, which is great. So talking about... I, I just want to mention that I, I have a workshop now that um, teaches that called Path to Self-Custody. Uh, so it's about how do you figure out what steps you need to take and whether you're ready and how far can you go on the path to self-custody. Because it's not either you hold your own keys or you don't uh, and nothing in between. There, There's levels of um, financial sovereignty, if you like. And you can take steps gradually uh, to move up this, let's call it the financial sovereignty staircase, right? And if, if you think about it, if you are involved in cryptocurrency, even if you have keys on an exchange, they're not your keys, and you have some cryptocurrency, well, yes, you haven't achieved full financial sovereignty, but look around you at the people who only hold euro or only hold US dollars. You already have one step above them in terms of financial sovereignty. So congratulations, welcome to this journey. Now let's take the second step. Um, I think it's it's important to emphasize that while it's ideal that people move up this staircase until they can reach as much financial sovereignty as possible, not everyone will be able to do that. Every step is worth doing. And instead of saying you're doing Bitcoin wrong if someone's only on the first step, We need to switch that to congratulations. You've already taken a step that many, many people around you have not. Now let's see, are you ready for the next step? And if you are, let's help you take it. Yeah, I mean, I I can tell you, I uh, took up this idea and have it in the book now. Yes, I know. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> so thanks for book. that great idea. And I guess that's a uh, great workshop that you have there also for the people. I have to say that the actual concept of a, a staircase of financial sovereignty is not my idea. It's, It's Dr. Stephanie Murphy, yeah. uh, my co-host on Speaking of Bitcoin, the podcast. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm citing her too. <laughs> She's great, I think, also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, let's get a little bit to the state of the Lightning Network, mm-hmm. uh, talking about technological developments. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of uh, that has happened on the Lightning Network in the last months. Even I can't follow all these new projects anymore. Yeah. Can you? Um, barely. Um, and I, first of all, I've spent six, the last six months working intensively on the book. And for those who haven't heard, the final draft was sent to the publisher and we're going to get it published in December. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on the final track. Now it's just copy edits and things like that. You can already read the book online. It's open for anyone to read and share. 
It's called um, Mastering Mastering the Lightning Network. Mastering the Lightning Network. Um, and you can find it on GitHub as LN Book, uh, Lightning Network Book. Um, so uh, with my two uh, co-authors, Olaulua Ashtokun and Rene Picard, uh, we have um, produced what I think is a, is a really good book uh, that helps you understand not just um, how to use the Lightning Network and is very accessible for new users, especially the first four or five chapters, um, but then goes really into depth so you can understand um, how it works. And um, as with other books I've written, the goal, which I think we've achieved is, this is the book I wish I had when I started this journey hmm. so that the journey was easier. Hmm. Um, now, while we're writing it, things are changing. And um, it's always a challenge with technical books when, when we're dealing with such an innovative technology and a fast-moving technology. Where do you draw the line? Um, we've put some hints about some of the new things that are coming out in the Lightning Network, some of the new capabilities, but we didn't write about things that haven't yet been deployed. Um, so what it does is it captures a snapshot of the Lightning Network as it is today, and then the rest will have to go in a second edition of the book. Mm. Um, but even as we're doing this, um, one of the things about the Lightning Network that is so exciting is that the pace of innovation in Lightning is 10 times faster than it is in Bitcoin. And the reason for this is that you can think of the Lightning Network as 60,000 side chains, uh, each of which is a payment channel, which has as its consensus rules, a set of rules of how the channel is managed. And the two participants in that consensus are the two ends of the channel. Um, now, because they can negotiate what features they want to run, um, you don't have to have everyone on the network supporting the exact same rules for every channel. You can route things across the network. Um, and so some participants may support extra large channels, which is a feature called Wombo that was introduced mm -hmm. about a year ago. Others may not. Some may support... Um, a feature where you can uh, send money to the other side when you open the channel so that the first payment happens at opening time um, called a push. Uh, some uh, channel partners may support a feature called key send uh, where you can send money without having an invoice so that you can repeatedly send money such as donation without having to generate a new invoice. What you use with uh, streaming money for a podcast, for instance. Yes, exactly. And so all of these are great capabilities, but the thing is you don't need everyone to adopt them for them to work uh, on the network. And this means that, uh, and the other thing which is unique about the Lightning Network is because the consensus rules are more flexible on the Lightning Network because we depend on what happens on Bitcoin for security, um, you can have multiple different client implementations and they can have a minimum interoperability set, but they don't have to operate lockstep feature by feature. Mm -hmm. So some clients can do more things, others can do fewer things, but they can still work together. They can work together, but on the other hand, they can do their own uh, innovation at their own pace. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And what that means is we now have um, three mainstream clients 
which operates on the Lightning Network, and they're implementing the same basic set of features, but they also have several innovations that are unique to each client. And this is encouraging is, an enormous speed of innovation. And with client, you mean LND and C Lightning? LND, C Lightning, and Eclair by Eclair. Async mm -hmm. um, are the, are the um, three major clients. And people are writing more. There's a, a Rust implementation that people are working mm -hmm. on. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see more clients after that. And everything is open sourced and everything is independent from each other. So it uh, like C Lightning is made by or operated by Blockstream, LND, I think by Lightning Labs and then uh, I think. Exactly. Yeah. But but it's not a conglomerate. Nobody can decide uh, unilaterally on things. So no, they have uh, standards meetings where they get together to just agree on how to implement certain things that are desirable uh, to make sure that they can interoperate. Uh, and there are a set of standards documents which form the basis of Lightning technology, the bolts, as they're called, um, so that people can interoperate. But beyond that, they're independently managed. And even within those three implementations, everything's open source and open licensed, meaning that someone can take that code, fork it, and make another one. So if you, if you see that C Lightning has a good code base, but you want to do something different and they don't want to do it, uh, and for whatever reason you you decide you you can do it better now you fork it you call it d lightning which <laughs> doesn't make much sense because it's not a programming language but uh, you call it d lightning and then you launch another client and then good luck maintaining it at the same quality <laughs> you see the problem is isn't the first release the problem is the second release <laughs> and the third release um, software has to be maintained. But yeah. yes, I mean, this is a, a wide open ecosystem. Nobody controls it. And the pace of innovation is 10 times faster than Bitcoin. So it's a really exciting space to work in. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the younger developers are attracted to that instead of working on, say, the Bitcoin Core protocol. Bitcoin Core protocol is very conservative. It has to move slowly. It's carrying a very important infrastructure for the world and very large amounts of money. And so you can't easily make changes to it. Everything has to be, it's as people have described it, it's like doing maintenance on a jet engine in flight. Uh, you'd better not mess it up. Um, whereas what's happening in, in Lightning, um, you can do things and be a bit more reckless, as we say. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give you an example. I actually uh, messed things up recently on my own Lightning note over the past three days. Uh, turns out hilariously. So I was um, trying to change the channel fees that I charge for routing on my mm -hmm. um, on my Lightning node, and uh, I was trying to implement a, uh, this idea of having a zero base fee um, because it makes the pathfinding uh, a linear convex function, which is easier to solve. Um, whereas if you have a base fee, that problem optimally solved becomes NP hard. It's not computable. So to make more efficient routing algorithms better, I reduced my base fee to zero. It doesn't make any difference to me anyway. Um, and at the same time, I adjusted my proportional fee rate, which is mm -hmm. the fee that depends on the amount. Uh, so I got it wrong and accidentally set both to zero. 
Now, what happens on the Lightning Network if you set both fees to zero and you're a well-connected node with hundreds of channels Oops. is suddenly <laughs> you become the most desirable path. <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> so everyone tried to route all of their HDLCs through me. And then I ended up with a four gigabyte channel database and my node crashed. <laughs> so it took me two days to clean that up. Um, and then I made another mistake when I tried to set the fee rate to 0.5%. Mm -hmm. And instead I set it to 5,000%. <laughs> So then nobody routed their HDLCs through me. And, you know, but the thing is, my mistakes, one, they didn't really cost me a, a financial loss. I was able to recover them. And most importantly, what I did on my node didn't affect the rest of the Lightning Network. Mm. So we can experiment mm. and learn. I did that too. I mean, I also did that zero base fee on, uh -huh. uh, yeah, and, but I, uh, luckily I left the other fee rate uh, intact, yes. but I think I'm not sure if I'm routing <laughs> any payments anymore. I don't know why. Uh, or is it just that I don't see them because I don't see that there are new, uh, like Satoshi's fees coming in because, yeah. Well, I think the, the thing is in, in all of the lightning implementations that I know of, um, if you set that in your configuration file, it's going to use that fee for new channels. Ah. But you have to separately go in with the command line or API and change all of the fees on the existing channels. I so you have that. to make the change in two places. Oh. And the reason I accidentally made the mistake is because in one, in, in the client I was using, in the configuration file, you define it in millionths. Mm -hmm. And in the command line, it's defined as a percentage. So um, that's how I ended up with 5,000% fees. I'm also in one of those uh, rings, like Ring of Fire, I think is the name, like nodes connect with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and we are 20 nodes and some people say it's not working, it's too many. And do you have experience with that? Are 20 nodes too many? Because well, we have 10, 21, of course, 21 nodes. Um, not really. I, I don't have experience with that primarily because um, I, I have two kind of structural advantages in operating a note. First of all, I've been operating a note since 2017. Um, so it's been around long enough, first on the test nets and then in production. Um, but my node is um, ln.aantonop.com. So <laughs> like, people know it's it's me and they want to connect to it. And secondly, I actually operate it for economic activity because it runs the lightning payments on my store. So I I have um, uh, maybe a dozen orders a month that, that get paid with lightning payments. Uh, mostly for some of the, I have a, a few items that are priced at like a dollar or two that really make sense for lightning payments. Just little silly things. Um, and um, what happens is a lot of people will open their first channel to my shop node in order to make the first payment. Um, and this makes sense. If you're going to incur an on-chain fee to make a payment, incur that on-chain fee to open a channel, make the payment over Lightning, you've achieved the same thing for the same on-chain fee, but what you're left with at the end 
is also a channel mm -hmm. and a channel that has both inbound and outbound capacity. So you're better off. That's exactly a question I have for you because I don't know how that works because um, I guess you use BTC Pay for it, for yes. payments. So mm -hmm. um, when I see the QR code or the lightning invoice, okay, I can pay you with uh, lightning, but how do I then know your node name or your, your node, how is it called? Yeah, uh, the, the node the, ID. The node ID, how do I know that? I mean, so on the invoice page on BTC Pay, um, there is a button uh, underneath the QR code, I believe, or one of the tabs that says node info, and okay. that will show you the node ID. Also, it's in the invoice itself. It's mm -hmm. encoded in the invoice. So depending on what wallet you have, when you open the invoice, you can also decode an invoice and you can see the node. Um, so you okay, can open so your that, first channel. Then I can take the node ID and open the channel and put in, how much do I put in? The amount of the invoice? Well, probably more because more. what you want to do is st still have some money to send, mm -hmm. right? So let's say you wanted to buy... Let's give an example. You want to buy a $20 t-shirt from, from my shop. Um, so if you open a $100 channel um, to my node and then you send, you wait six confirmations, it opens. You still have $100 on your side. You send 20 as a lightning payment. Um, now that you've sent 20 as a lightning payment, you have $80 on your side as your balance, your local balance and 20 on the remote side, on my shop side, as the remote balance. The local balance you can use to send more payments to anybody else on the Lightning Network. So you have $80 to send to other people. But you can also receive up to $20 now because it's on the other end and mm -hmm. you can keep going back and forth like that. So I would open a bigger one and mm -hmm. then now you're connected to a well-connected node that can route you to anywhere. Um, and you've also got some capacity for inbound. Because a lot of the problems people have with channels is if they're using a, a wallet where you have to manage all of the channels, mm -hmm. um, when they first open, they have no inbound capacity. No one can send them anything. This is solved by some mobile wallets. Uh, effectively, you pay a small percentage fee and they open inbound capacity to you automatically when you start the wallet. Uh, Blue Wallet does that. Phoenix does that. They're all... Great wallets, very easy to use. Um, but um, simply by opening a, a channel to a store, you can achieve the same result and have some good inbound capacity and you were going to spend the fee anyway. Mm -hmm. I'm always a little confused, to be honest, uh, by the fees uh, that like Phoenix or I, Blue Wallet, I don't use it yet, um, that they take for for the openings. And I always have the feeling I also pay a, fee, pay a fee to them if I pay something. So I, I to be honest, um, maybe I should read it up better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but it seems to me it's confusing because every wallet uh, does it in a different way. Yes. Is it now a custodial wallet? Is it a non-custodial wallet? Is it something in between? So these are non-custodial wallets. Um, so you have control of the keys and you don't have to trust them. Uh, there is a small privacy risk because um, they can see at least the next hop and you, they know how much money you're sending out. Um, but, you know, if you want more control, you can get more control by doing your own channel management on a more complicated wallet. And the other thing is what we're seeing here is the emergence of a market for services. 
essentially, these providers are competing for ease of use for a small price, and that price will keep dropping mm. uh, because it, the, the cost of routing isn't that high. And so um, the other thing that's really important, which I think is, is a wonderful result out of this, you pay a small percentage for incoming channel capacity. Well, that means that this wallet provider has income. One of the biggest problems mm -hmm. for companies that are trying to make wallets is how do you monetize a product that you give away for free where the f transaction fees go to miners, but if they're too high, you get blamed because everyone's like, why do you, <laughs> and it's not your fault, yeah, right? Yeah. And how do you monetize that? Mm. And as a result, many, many wallets have fallen out of maintenance or mm. gone bankrupt because they haven't figured this out. Well, Lightning wallets do monetize mm -hmm. because you can use the channel to pay the wallet um, vendor or manufacturer or builder um, a small fee. Uh, you can use it to do a subscription um, for the wallet um, and you and they can make a small fee on incoming payments, mm. um, which again is less than you would pay for on-chain fees, significantly less, um, and actually gives wallet developers a way to monetize this, which means we're going to have more competition and better wallets and better UI. So I'm very excited about that. Mm -hmm, cool. So uh, in mainstream media, people still believe that Bitcoin can only uh, do like seven transactions per second. Mm -hmm. And Visa does much more. And that's mm -hmm. why Bitcoin should be banned because it uses too much electricity. Mm -hmm. um, so, but now we have the Lightning Network. Mm -hmm. um, I know that uh, we don't even know how many nodes there are out there because we only see the public nodes. Mm -hmm. And um, from that, I guess we also don't know how many channels we have or which are open. We know the, we know the lower level, the mm -hmm. lowest amount. We have at least 15,000 nodes with at least 60,000 channels mm -hmm. uh, because those are published, public. Uh, that doesn't mean those are the only ones. So we know the floor, if you like, but we don't know where the ceiling is. Mm -hmm. And we also don't know how many transactions are happening. Um, in, at all. In the Lightning Network. In the Lightning yeah. Network. We know what the overall capacity is and people are like, oh, look, this is the overall capacity. But that's like um, measuring the width of a road and not knowing how many cars are going through. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be exactly my question. How mm -hmm. many cars do you think will go through in the future so that I think there, there will be much more payments possible than the Visa Network can manage? Oh, there, there are thousands of payments uh, happening on the Lightning Network already on a daily basis. Um, so I think, I think the Lightning Network is already carrying more transactions um, per second than the Bitcoin on-chain, mm -hmm. and it's barely started. Um, there is effectively um, the upper limit of the Lightning Network is, is it's not clear what that upper limit is. Um, you can send transactions back and forth as fast as the network will transmit them. Um, and if you do a transaction on one channel, it doesn't consume capacity on any other part of the network. Um, and so theoretically, at least, uh, you could do millions of transactions per second. Uh, and in fact, the bigger the network gets, uh, the more interconnected the network gets, the less we know about what's happening on it, 
because mm -hmm. we keep seeing a smaller and smaller part of the network and uh, the more um, capacity it has. So this is a network where as it grows, it gains capacity instead of getting more congested. Mm -hmm. Which also means that this capacity, meaning Bitcoin, which are basically locked in the Lightning Network, mm -hmm. can we say it like that? I, I prefer to say they're unleashed in the Lightning Network. Because, <laughs> because if, if I have the choice between having a Bitcoin on-chain versus having Bitcoin off-chain, um, if it's off-chain, I can still do on-chain transactions with it by using uh, a loop uh, function where you basically do an a lightning payment that pays a Bitcoin address through a gateway. Um, I can do that. It's basically an atomic swap between lightning and Bitcoin. Um, but I can also do thousands of transactions uh, for almost no fee very, very fast. So which one is locked? I would say the one that's on, -chain, yeah. on the on-chain network is the slow. And, and of course, I want that for my cold storage. Mm -hmm. There, I want it to be locked up and and difficult to get to. Um, but for my spending money, um, not only do I want it on the Lightning Network, and it, and it's much more liquid when it's on the Lightning Network, uh, but in fact, every opportunity where I have an on-chain transaction to do, I would rather open a channel and do a Lightning transaction instead. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that in the near future, users won't see the difference between the Lightning Network and on-chain transactions anymore? Absolutely, they won't. Because there are some people who think there has to be a difference, people need to know uh, what is on-chain and what is off-chain. No, they don't at all. And in fact, um, the Lightning um, interface has the ability to have a fallback Bitcoin address inside the Lightning invoice. So pay with Lightning and if you can't, pay with Bitcoin mm -hmm. uh, on-chain. And um, you, you can also do um, essentially atomic swaps between the two. Uh, you can also open channels instead of doing an on-chain payment. Eventually, all of this is going to be completely abstracted by your wallet. You scan a QR code, your wallet decides what is the best way to do this. Um, what's going to be interesting is I think we're going to start seeing the opposite, which is Bitcoin payment QR codes that have lightning invoices embedded in them. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially both will have both and your wallet will decide how best to route it. Um, let me give you a similar example. If you make a telephone call today, you don't decide if you're going to use fiber optic or satellite. However, you may tell the difference. Mm -hmm. When you make your call, if it goes via satellite, you may hear a slight delay. Um, so that's the only way you know that the, that the network or your interface decided to route it a specific way, um, just because of the side effect of a slight delay. The same thing with that, with Bitcoin. So if you make a payment and there's a slight delay, you realize, oh, my wallet had to do it on chain for yeah. some reason. Maybe the fees were very low. Maybe the invoice indicated that it wasn't an urgent payment. Um, If I'm selling you an ebook, uh, if you're sit standing in line at a checkout or in a restaurant, I'm not going to wait three confirmations, 30 minutes for that payment, right? But if I'm selling you a house or a car or I'm going to ship a TV to you, 
I don't care if it takes an hour. Hmm. I'm not even going to be able to put that box in the mail for <laughs> at least an hour, right? Um, so in some cases, it might make sense to do on-chain. I think this becomes a user interface uh, aspect of the protocol, and eventually the differences are completely blurred. You don't even know what you're using. I think the good thing is here that you don't need a consensus on that because every wallet uh, provider can do it like they want. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So then people then can decide, I want to use a wallet where I see the difference, and others can say, no, I want the convenient one which manages everything for me. Yes. Some yeah. people who um, drive cars uh, do not want to use an automatic gear shift. Exactly. Yeah. Um, especially if it's a sports car, they want to have that direct connection and know exactly what the engine is doing and how it's transmitting power to the wheels. A vast majority of people are happy to just put it in D and go. Uh, <laughs> and that's fine. In fact, I the, the new Tesla doesn't even have... A gear shifter it just decides based on how you got into that space or where you were going and what's around you if you want to go forward or backwards uh -huh. picks a direction and then you can override it but you don't have to most of the time mm -hmm. it's it's funny how we change our conception of what is a necessary part of the interface and what in fact was simply a technology limitation that we got so used to we thought it was part of the experience mm -hmm. Does it actually worry you? Uh, I mean, I guess not personally, but that uh, there are not so many uh, Bitcoin transactions on chain at the moment. I mean, there's only always in the mempool, like, I don't know, a handful of transactions. Is this a reason to worry? No, this is a normal part of the cycle. We're, uh, we're on the other end of, of the big bubble and the frenzy. And uh, we might have another peak and another frenzy. But right now we're in the quiet hours in between where all of the people who got excited too easily mm -hmm. uh, also got disappointed too easily. Um, yeah, which is absurd because we are now back like, I mean, I know you don't want to talk about price, but we are at, I don't know, 50,000 US dollars I just read, again. I just uh, read an article headline that said um, Bitcoin Ethereum investors abandoning or, or panic selling after catastrophic crash. In Ethereum? Or are you, are you mean Bitcoin, the Bitcoin? I mean, yeah, either, I, either or. Catastrophic crash. Yeah. We are, um, we are at, in, in both cases, we're at 10x what we were a year and a half ago. If that's a catastrophic crash. So this, we jokingly say that there is a very strong possibility 10 years from now that people are going to say, headline, Bitcoin collapses to only $1 million. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and when we say it now, it appears absurd. But I want to remind everybody that we were saying this in 2015 after the 2013 collapse, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yet that's exactly the headline we have now. I'm not saying it's going to go there. I'm saying that if it does go there, that's the headline they're gonna write. Definitely, <laughs> it, definitely Bitcoin yeah. is forever catastrophically collapsing. Mm -hmm. And then when it's doing the opposite, they forget to write about it. Mm. Now you remind me of one question that I have for you because I'm sure you remember that from top of your head or you know it. 
one one person on Twitter the last time where I always say to them, Bitcoin is immutable; it cannot be changed. There are no rewritings of the blockchain and things mm -hmm. like that. And then this person came up with, "But here, look, in 2010 or 2013, they did rewrite, so Bitcoin is not immutable." Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about what happened back then? I think it was a bug. Um, yes, and, it, and, it happened and twice. Once it happened, in 2010, yep. once in 2013. Mm -hmm. Tell mm -hmm. us, please, about it and why can we still say Bitcoin is immutable? So um, what happened in 2010 was there was a bug that allowed someone to mine uh, <laughs> billions of Bitcoin and that was corrected and the rules of consensus um, invalidated that block um, and we moved forward. Uh, Bitcoin is immutable unless everyone agrees. So the, the question is, what are the circumstances under which everyone agrees to rewrite it? And so far, we've only seen two scenarios where that happens. In 2010, with the mining bug. And then in 2013, what happened was, during the um, deployment of a new version of the Bitcoin Core software, 0 0.8, um, a bug was discovered in the older version, 0 0.7, where it could not handle more than a thousand transactions per block. Specifically, it couldn't handle more than 1,024, um, which is uh, binary 1,000, um, because, uh, <laughs> ironically, because the database it was using ran out of open file descriptors. Uh, so it was a limitation in the operating system. It had nothing to do with the consensus rules. Mm -hmm. But what happened is once a 0 0.8 client mined uh, a block with 1,025 transactions in it, all of the clients that were still on 0 0.7 would try to validate that block, choke, crash, shut down. And they'd reboot, come back, say, what's the new block? Get the same block, try to validate it, choke, crash, <laughs> shut down. Mm -hmm. And they started this thing called flapping, just up and down and up and down. So one side, which was running 0 0.8, ended up 26 blocks ahead Mm -hmm. um, in the time it took, you know, mm -hmm. 260 minutes to figure out what to do. And then people said, no, turn off the, turn off the, all the clients that are running 0 0.8 and let it resolve itself. And it did. And again, we didn't rewrite the blockchain. We didn't change the rules. We fixed the bug in software. And then we let the consensus rules figure out um, how to progress the blocks mm -hmm. in that direction. So, so, so the blockchain didn't rewrite, then it just moved on. It just moved on, yes. From where it was halted in a way because it couldn't, and then yes. it moved on. Okay. So the 26 blocks um, that got reorganized, um, they still, the transactions all still got included, mm -hmm. uh, just delayed by 260 minutes. Okay, I understand. Um, but again, the, the, the idea of immutability... Um, it's important to understand that a blockchain is eventually immutable. What does that mean? That means that the more blocks that have passed, the more that immutability gets stronger. Mm -hmm. um, think of it like uh, drilling a core sample in the earth. If you look at the, the top five centimeters of soil, you're looking at very recent stuff, which may have been disturbed. I mean, it may have just been blown by wind recently. Once you go 
10 meters down, you're looking at soil that probably hasn't been disturbed in 100 years. Once you go 100 meters down, you're now looking at soil that maybe hasn't been disturbed in 100,000 or a million years. Um, and each layer there has been compacted and mm. is exactly as it was when it was deposited. And you can see, you know, oh, there was a forest fire this year. There's a thin layer of ash. Um, so think of the blockchain as the same. You're adding layers on top. As you do, they compact and make the older layers more and more stable, uh, almost like geological time. Um, yes, the surface. Sometimes the wind blows in the wrong direction and the top mm -hmm. 26 blocks get blown away and then they get laid on again. Um, but immutability is a property that increases over time. So how immutable is your transaction? More immutable with every block. In fact, if you look at the Satoshi white paper, there's one equation in there, in the entire paper, and that equation is, what is the probability of a block being rewritten based on how many blocks are above it? Um, and you can see how that probability drops exponentially, how and why six blocks or six confirmations were chosen as we're now at a level of probability that is robust. Mm -hmm. um, now, 26 blocks is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, no invalid transactions were done. Yeah, and it, I think it was at a time where there were, I guess, not very many transactions on Bitcoin? or Yes, and um, not very many participants who um, were willing and able to take advantage. Hmm. Um, there will always be small bugs in the system, um, but these bugs become increasingly rare, and the impact of these bugs is increasingly limited as more and more has been laid on top. Ironically, I think we should be humble enough to recognize that other blockchains that are much younger also get to do an oopsie every now and then <laughs> without saying you've invalidated the entire thesis of immutability yes. um, because it's hypocritical to say so. Yes, but like, I mean, you know that yesterday the chain split the Ethereum chain uh, oh. Unintentionally, uh, you don't. I didn't. You I didn't. wasn't paying attention. Yeah, no, to the no. News. It's uh, had, has gone apart. There was a hard fork. Uh, I think um, in a client or something in the software there was a bug, and not everybody did update. Ah, um, uh, yeah. Uh, fast so enough. that's exactly the thing that happened in 2013 in in Bitcoin. Exactly. Much. So yeah. is this also an oopsie? Yeah, for it is. And and but, of course, I mean, you Ethereum is a system that has deliberately um uh, that has a deliberate as a design the idea of moving faster and occasionally breaking things more often and that is a double-edged sword mm -hmm. meaning that um it means that ethereum does not have the sound money properties and security properties of bitcoin it cannot have them mm -hmm. but it also means that it it can move with um innovation and experiments much, much faster and iterates much faster. Um, over time, it's getting more and more stable. As I said, it's a double-edged sword. Bitcoin is much more stable and has sound money properties and it's much more robust and secure. However, that means that in order to get one feature, it takes three years of planning um, to do so. So, you know, these are different design 
decisions. And I think we're going to see more oopsies. I hope we don't see any more um, in Bitcoin because the stakes are very different. Exactly. That would be not so good yeah. <laughs> to have an oopsie here. Um, so what I'm personally really also in, in, am interested in, and I know you get this question a lot. Um, so are you actually also looking into other altcoins like from the technological standpoint do you find you don't need to name any but do you think them interesting because you also say we're gonna have thousands of cryptocurrencies and our wallets will decide uh, which cryptocurrency is the best in that use case yeah i think uh, it's important to recognize that um, there's a very big difference between investing in or looking at whether something is worth investing in or whether it's implemented interesting technology. So I can look at interesting technology coming from a variety of sources. That doesn't mean I think that it's ultimately going to be stable, successful, long-lasting. It might not. I, I can't really say that for anything other than Bitcoin. Um, but at the same time, that technology is not only interesting, but it teaches us very important lessons. Um, and in some cases, the experiments that can happen in other chains can't happen in Bitcoin. And in fact, we don't want them to happen in Bitcoin. And they're not invalidated by the fact that these other chains are less stable, less long-lived in some cases, uh, or have less of an economic uh, basis. Uh, the experiments are still very, very important. And the technologies that they're proving are very, very important. So yes, I, I do look at other things. I'm interested in a number of different things. I'm interested in blockchains that are implementing very strong anonymity capabilities and privacy capabilities, and that are implementing various things related to zero-knowledge proofs and the whole research area around zero-knowledge. Um, I'm interested in chains that are implementing um, robust decentralization features uh, that do things cross-chain. Um, things like being able to create uh, atomic swaps across currencies and decentralized exchanges that are robust, but multi-currency decentralized exchanges. Um, and I, I continue to be interested in um, chains that are doing smart contracts and virtual machine-based um, blockchain computing. That doesn't mean I think they're going to be successful. And it certainly doesn't mean I'm going to put my money in them. Um, but there's a very big difference between studying the technology. Um, I can tell you I'm not writing any more books. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I already thought to myself, I mean, you can't start another book because you have to like uh, change the books uh, yes. every year. You have to update them. Yeah, like Bitcoin. Yes. And I don't know if you're going to update Ethereum, yes. but Lightning, etc. And Yeah, um, I just, I literally finished Mastering Lightning three weeks ago, four, four weeks ago. Um, Mastering Bitcoin uh, third edition. Uh, is my next plan. Uh, I promised that once uh, Taproot got activated, I would add a chapter on Taproot, Tabscript, and Schnorr signatures. It's now time. <laughs> um, I would like to get that done sooner rather than later. Um, for Ethereum, uh, I, I think that the, the, the important milestone is um, the migration to Ethereum 2.0, so the ETH2 chain. Uh, proof of stake, uh, beacon chain, sharding, 
um, optimistic rollups or zero knowledge rollups or whatever else they decide to do for scaling. That's an important milestone at which point we need to do a third edition, uh, second edition. And then, you know, the Lightning Network book will need a second edition soon. Uh, so, yeah, there isn't enough space between these iterations. No, I mean, to do we would else. need more Andreas's then. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I, I mean, a lot of the, the especially the more, the more I do this, the more collaborators and contributors with these books. So these are not Andreas projects. Mm. Uh, they haven't been since the first edition of Mastering Bitcoin. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, the last one was with two co-authors and uh, it would not have happened otherwise. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, for people who keep suggesting that I write mastering whatever altcoin. Uh, favorite altcoin theirs is. No, I'm, I'm not going to. And uh, it, I can only um, spend the time to research, you know, one or two things at a time. Uh, and then I get spread too thin and then I can't keep up. Yeah, I mean, I completely understand uh, writing alone this this beginner's book in a way. I mean, it takes you years in a way. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then you filter it down and focus, and then you write it, and then, I mean, the 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 editing afterwards mm -hmm. afterwards uh, is almost more work. I have the feeling uh, than writing it in the first place. Yeah, a lot more that goes into these books than than you might imagine. Exactly. A lot of research, writing, and then editing. Um, on average, these projects are between two and three years long. Um, and they're emotionally taxing, they're professionally taxing. And l let's be honest, these are not like um, a career choice. I don't <laughs> write books because I think that's going to secure my retirement. Um, thankfully, uh, Bitcoin's already done that, um, as an investment, but, uh, the books certainly don't. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty thankless job and sometimes you get hated for writing the wrong book. <laughs> That's true. Um, but I write them because I need to satisfy my desire to learn in depth a topic and satisfy my intellectual curiosity. That's the only reason anyone would do something as crazy as write a book. It always hurts a little when I see you in an interview and people ask you, why did you write Mastering Ethereum? And what they make jokes and whatever about you. And I always think to myself, oh, come on, leave him alone. I mean, uh, it's, so, so it's an interesting technology for you. So what the fuck, actually? I mean, you can write what you want. Well, the simplest answer is, have you read it? <laughs> uh, if you want to know why I wrote it, read it. Uh, if you can't take the time to read it to find out, then I don't really need to take the time to answer that question. <laughs> That's true. Okay, let's uh, close that, come to an end. Thank mm -hmm. you, Andreas. There, there's a saying, you don't change Bitcoin, Bitcoin changes you. <laughs> How did Bitcoin change you? I mean, in, in more ways than I can count. Uh, Bitcoin completely um, changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, it gave me... Uh, an outlet for my creative passion. It uh, generated endless years of enthusiasm. It turned me into an author uh, and an author for a very respected publisher. Um, it turned me into a, a university professor. It gave me opportunities I never imagined. Uh, it's helped my financial security. It's helped the financial security of my entire family, really. 
Um, and it's given me endless joy and excitement. Uh, and it's led to other things. And it's still a journey that's not over. And I continue to be amazed and excited and learning something new every day. Uh, Bitcoin has changed me incredibly. I don't know that I, as you said, I haven't changed Bitcoin one bit, but Bitcoin changed me a lot. Great. Thank you very much, Andreas. Uh, where can people uh, find and follow your work? Uh, A. Antonop, A-A-N-T-O-N-O-P. Antonop.com is my website. A. Antonop is my Twitter, my YouTube, and uh, various other platforms you can find. Uh, please be careful. There are a lot of people out there impersonating me. Imposters trying to sell you investment advice. I do not ask you for money. Um, on the bottom of my website, there's links to all of the real accounts that mm -hmm. I use. Uh, so you can verify those. But the simple rule of thumb is if I'm asking you for money, it's not me. Yeah. But <laughs> if I'm suggesting investments, it's not me. That's... But uh, yeah, my videos and books um, are available in multiple languages and uh, available for free, available open source, available under very many different open licenses. Yes, but what is very important and where you do ask people for their money is your Patreon community. Yes. Um, so uh, Patreon is, is a way to engage with a community that understands why I'm doing this educational mission. And it's not really for people to get something. It's for people who already maybe got something And now um, they want to help others get the same by financing my team who um, repackages and translates and delivers more books and more videos to more people in more languages all around the world. Um, so it's, it's something also that I enjoy very much because it gets me a chance to, to meet people who understand why I do what I do. Hmm. So yes, so support Andreas on Thank his you. mission uh, to educate millions of people about yes. Bitcoin. And you have done a great, great job here already in the thank last you. years. Uh, it's immense what you did. And thank you for that. And no, thank thanks you. for joining us. Yes, thank you so much, Anita. I always enjoy these uh, interviews. And please support Anita and her work too. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for joining. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show at anita.link slash subscribe and forward this episode to your friends and family. The more people hear about Bitcoin, the better. Until next week, when it's time for the Anita Post Show. Goodbye.